Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where Cambridge University students chat with the experts who have contributed to the festival. I'm Rebecca King, I'm a third year English literature student and today I'm going to be interviewing some of the participants in this year's Cambridge Creative Encounters Words event which saw researchers from across the university coming together under the guidance of David Kane to turn their research into poetry to communicate with a wider audience. We'll be hearing from some of those researchers later and listening to some of the poems that were specially created for this event. But first up, here's David Kane to explain more. Hi there, my name is David Kane and I work with the public engagement team at the University of Cambridge and I manage the Cambridge Festival. I also am a writer and a poet and this project in particular is part of the Creative Encounters programme so each year the university's public engagement team runs a programme which brings together researchers with creative professionals to explore people's research in in new and different ways. Um, Previously we've done this through theatre and photography but we've never done it through through poetry or creative writing before so this this was the first time that we've done that and and the words programme was a way to work with researchers to help them find their voice, I guess, from a poetic point of view and to share their research with the public. Lovely. So what did that entail? What was the structure of this programme? We brought the researchers together. We had a number of them take part in the programme. And it was a number of kind of group sessions to start with. So so everybody kind of joined in. It was all online because we're still in a period of uncertainty with the pandemic. So it was all took place online. And it was an opportunity for people to talk about their research but also talk about their journey to creative writing. Some people had written before, some people had never written any, any poems or poetry before at all. So in those group sessions, we talked through different kind of formats and themes and ways of sharing poetry and titling it and how to, to find their voices, I guess. Um, and it was also an opportunity for me to find out about their research um, from a support point of view or a mental point of view, having an understanding of the research and what the the message might be to the public, I think is always really interesting. And what I find really interesting working with academics and researchers is that they've already got their subject. Sometimes you work with people from a creative writing point of view and they say, well, what shall I write about? And you have to say to them, well, you need to find what you want to write about. But with uh, researchers and academics, they really know their subjects and often they're, they're very you know, knowledgeable or experts in their fields. So it's not finding what they need to write about. It's finding a way to present or explore that with the public from a, a poetry point of view. And I really love that part of it. It's fascinating. So what was the relationship between the, uh, the content, the topics? It's very academic. Uh, material and then things like form and storytelling did particular poets uh, gravitate towards particular styles how did you oversee all of that as the mentor it's really interesting because obviously each poet's coming from a different background and different research area um, and bringing it together I remember there's a discussion on our very first session and the people who were scientists within the group said, well, this is impossible. I want to try and do it. So they obviously thought it wasn't impossible, but, but they, they felt it would be a real challenge. Um, so they said it was really impossible or a challenge to do this. And people more from an arts or humanities basis thought, thought they would. And I actually put out something on social media and I asked people, and people from a science background said, no, it's impossible. You can't share science research through poetry. And people from an arts or humanities background said, yes, of course you can. Yeah. Um, the, the, the truth somewhere in between the two, in, in the middle, um, and it was a way of exploring it. For example, we did some work which we kind of looked at their, their research. So one of the, the tasks they had was to actually just take a research paper, either their own or, or, or a colleague's within it, and write a poem based just on the research, and looking at the language. 
because often the scientific language in particular can be really poetic um, and it's breaking down that barrier that sometimes we don't need to understand the word but from a poetry point of view it can have a really nice sound or rhythm to it and giving them the confidence to use their their research in a you know an engaging way about how we frame it and how we share those those messages within it so it was a challenge looking at that some people fell into it more easily than other than others and one of the other key bits was putting the eye back into it so um and this is something i've learned working with researchers and academics is that throughout their academic career they're told to take themselves out of what they do that it has to be very objective and they don't write about themselves now we come to a creative writing point of view, a public engagement point of view. I want them to put themselves back in, back into the story. Um, not necessarily write about themselves, like the I, but to write, you know, have a personality of what they're writing about. Um, and that came for you beautifully in some of the poetry as well. I, I loved how people went on that journey from thinking that it had to be very objective and scientific to actually telling the stories about themselves being on field research and their, their experiences and the kind of the, the group title came about being about we shall not cease from exploration but that came from the, the themselves being identifying as researchers but also having this sense of exploring the world and it was them as a person who was exploring the world not just the science or, or the research doing it it was down to them so I really loved that part of it. It's interesting because I know that for some of the other um, creative encounters strands mm -hmm we've had academics paired with creatives. I found that really interesting because you're absolutely right some of the other creative encounters programs it's been here's my research and it's over to the creative persons particularly for things like animation perhaps where th there is a technical aspect to it. it was from the the creative writing or the poetry point of view I was really keen that it was it was their voice and I think from a, a poetry point of view it's kind of it's hard to write that for the person you, you might it'd be my poem basically it'd be a poem written by me rather than a poem written by them um so i was really keen to, for them to explore that and to, to find their voice with it and it was so fascinating watching that journey over a, a number of months from people starting with writing poems which they felt that they should write and it would often be following styles and formats which they were familiar with um and then finding their own voice within it and it going off in completely different directions to what i expected and hopefully what they expected as well towards the final pieces and also the opportunity to share that with other people in the group and kind of listen to, to other people's viewpoints and how I'm a big believer that poetry is very much from an oral tradition spoken word literally would have been how it would have started and the rhythms within it are very much based on voices and how they sound and even when we read a poem we, we read it on a page but we have a voice in our head of the poem um, so I was really keen that they got used to speaking their poems to each other but also listening to poems and, and language and that worked really well I think that helped them to explore their own their own writing and their own voices within it so I feel that worked really well too. And what has the reaction been I know that you've shared a, a, this a bit um, but have you had much feedback from uh, the public about these poems? We have done so we, we had an exhibition of, of these poems but we've also shared the booklets in various different places and we have had some fantastic reactions and people responding to it in different ways and um, there's some poetry in there which is very personal as I mentioned earlier it's, it's people's experiences on field trips and the public have found that really relatable I think that is a really rich avenue to explore to so they see the individual they see the person rather than the scientist or the researcher or the not even sometimes the kind of the name at the bottom of the, the, the page they actually see the person or hear about the person and we've also explored sharing these poems with other people so we're, we're looking at other poetry 
um, session to have a creative encounters groups and this resource is fantastic because I think once researchers see other people like them sharing their work through poetry it makes them more confident to do it so I think over time I see this this session which we we ran very much as a starting point and each year it'll enable more people to find their voice and to share their their work through poetry and to feel comfortable with it I think that's that's part of it as well as a researcher sometimes you feel from a an academic group way point of view that these things are seen as a bit softer touch or lighter or or not serious um, and but from a public engagement point of view they are so important because they are that route way to the public and they are a way to enable different people to respond to people's research and I think that, re that works really well in terms of this course so I hope it's very much a starting point. Lovely so it will go on it will happen again next year hopefully. It will do, yes. We just started years, next year's cohort of researchers have joined. Very different group of people, but very interesting group of people. And it's really starting to go into to different directions and, and new formats and new ways of doing, doing, doing poetry for next year. We've, even as kind of a bit of a sneak peek, we've got some binary poem coming, which is being computer generated, which is completely new to me, but, wow. but a great way of sharing research. Thank you, David. First up, we're going to hear from Dr. Catherine Merrick, who will tell us a bit more about what it was like taking part in this experience, particularly coming from a scientific background. So I'm an associate professor at the pathology department in, in Cambridge. Um, I run a research laboratory that looks at um, human malaria parasites. And the, uh, the Creative Encounters programme asked us to write poems that uh, conveyed our research, which in my case is the, the cellular and molecular biology of malaria parasites, and potentially also to convey the, the sort of the nature of that research. Um, so I wrote some poems about malaria and I wrote some poems about how it is to be a molecular biologist in a laboratory, which I think is kind of obscure to people who don't do that kind of work every day potentially both at the level of the the junior researchers the graduate students and postdocs who are at the bench dealing with the the malaria parasites and perhaps even more so at the the level of someone like myself running the laboratory writing the grant applications for keeping the show on the road so I wanted to try and explain to people what we what we do. Wonderful and so why, why poetry are you someone who um, has always used poetry to explore your science um, or has poetry been separate from science up until now? Uh, certainly the latter. So whilst I might have, you know, written um, in a variety of formats, including poetry in the past, I had not written poems about science. So one of the interesting things was to, um, to see if that was a, a viable format. And I think all of us who did the programme discovered sort of that it, potentially it was, but that it was a, a new and a different challenge to try and express that. So what were the challenges? What were the, the, the hardest parts of this process for you? I think perhaps the key thing was sort of finding a voice that was remotely suitable to write a poem in. So, so all of us um, were scientists in different uh, formats and um, certainly for, for us who are sort of re relatively uh, molecular bench scientists, but I think it was true for everyone really, it's quite difficult to write an engaging poem about a PCR reaction. It's relatively easy to write a poem about how you feel as a person doing the PCR reaction or why you're doing it or what, it, what it's supposed to mean. And I think as a result, all of us end up writing poems as much about scientists as about the science, because we found that that was the way into explaining what we were doing. So more about um, the character of the, 
the person involved in the research or the, the beneficiary of the research, if it's a it's medicine, then kind of personifying <laughs> diseases or molecules or trying to come up with a, a, a good enough metaphor <laughs> to describe these very specific processes. Yeah, exactly. I found it was, you know, I, I had a bash at sort of writing poems about malaria parasites or about the, the, the molecular biology that we do and, and just found that they were either just less good poems or it was a lot more difficult to do that than to write about, um, yeah, about people with malaria or what or people in the lab doing the science or the interface between the two. It's really interesting. So it was in a way easier to introduce the science if you stepped back a little just from the science and, and it sort of interwove that with something else. Would that be a fair way of... Uh, yes, fair exactly, way of exactly that, I would say, yes. Yeah. Um, and were there ever any moments where you felt that you had to sacrifice something of the science for sort of poetic uh, merit? Were there moments where you, you thought, I, you know, I've, I've had to kind of kill one of my darlings here. I, I wanted to explain this in more detail, but it, 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 it wouldn't work as a poem or, you know, how, how did you balance those moments? Um, now that you ask, interestingly, not really. Um, and perhaps that was the nature of the, the poems that I chose to write, uh, because actually some of my colleagues on the programme, I think, did do a brilliant job of sort of interweaving more of the scientific process into their poems and perhaps there you can see that I as a biologist might be able to see what's being conveyed and I don't know if the average person who isn't a biologist would I think they would also get something out of it but you know I found that I was mostly focusing on on the people on the disease and of course because I work on a human disease that's relatively easy to do perhaps um, and that was I hope accessible to most of the people reading rather than just to a sort of a hard scientist. What was it like working with the group? To, to what degree did that sort of assist you? Or, you know, how different would this have been if you'd sat down to do this on your own outside of the Creative Encounters programme? I think, to be absolutely honest, for one thing, I wouldn't have sat down to do it without the Creative Encounters programme. So it, if nothing else, it acted as a, a spur to, to do this. I think as I get older and I do more more other things that take up my kind of creative energies, a lot of them sort of involved in running a research laboratory, I write less in general. So it was good to have a spur to, okay, now you have to sit down and write some poems because someone's, someone's asked you to. Um, so, so that was good. It was also good to have um, the, the coordinator of the programme sort of suggesting things that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise have done at all. So he said, oh, yeah, try writing a pantoum. And I, I wrote a pantoum about doing science, but I wouldn't have done that if it hadn't been suggested. So, um, so yes, I think that was valuable too. Lovely. Can you explain to our listeners what a pantoum is, in case they don't know? So, um, so, so I should say that I wrote a rather, a rather mutant and, and non-conventional pantoum as it, as it ultimately transpired, but it's an ancient uh, Persian form of poetry, I believe, that has a series of repeating lines, uh, so much like a, a sestina or a vinalel or other sort of formats of poetry. This is one, um, or a haiku or a sonnet or other things that people might be familiar with. It's a format into which you can put your poetic idea. And why did that one in particular come up as a possible, you know, what, what was it about that style that attracted you? Or, or that, that David, perhaps? Why did David suggest it to you? That's a good question. You should ask David, I suppose. I think it's relatively easy. I mean, some of these forms are incredibly difficult to write good poems in, and, and this one is relatively easy. Um, and it also has a nice... I ended up writing a number of poems in 
blank verse, but also a number in format, in, in rhyming or in, in sort of formats that I wouldn't normally write in. And I found that that actually, perhaps something about in this instance, using the repeating lines was quite sort of, um, allowed me to kind of tell the story as I went along, um, which for that particular poem I found to be useful. Lovely, yeah, beautiful. Um, and, and we've got this poem that we're going to play. Um, this is The Scientist. Um, and it's, it's, it's lovely. It's got this wonderful blend of the very important and the very mundane. It really captures various elements of what, it, what it's like to be a scientist. I wonder whether you can tell us a bit more about just a little glimpse into the, the development process of this one. That, that which, you've, which you've said, is, I guess, is exactly what I wanted to convey here, which is, you know, sort of the very day-to-day -day business of, of being a scientist. And, and it actually takes as its starting point a quote uh, from the, the late great professor E.O. Wilson, who recently died, a tremendous polymath, a sociobiologist, entomologist, and he wrote a number of books, um, including a book called Biophilia. And in that, you find the quote, a scientist does not discover in order to know, but knows in order to discover. That inversion of purpose is more than just a trait, it is the essence of the matter. Which I think is a wonderful quote because it, it, it exactly conveys, you know, what's true, I think, for a lot of scientists. Um, and it makes us all sound rather noble. But at the same time, in terms of my actual day-to-day -day life, it's like 95% slog, 5% nobility, you know, on a good day. And I wanted to convey that as well. Um, so to do that, I borrowed um, essentially from the classic poem by W.H. Auden called The Night Mail, uh, which I'm sure many listeners will know. Um, and for anyone who doesn't, it's, uh, it follows the, the mail train back in the era of steam in the 1920s or 30s. It's going up to Scotland. Uh, this is the night mail crossing the border, bringing the check and the postal order. So it's supposed to sound like a, a train and it sort of slogs up a hill then it pauses at the top and the cadence changes and it looks down at Scotland and then it races down the other side of the hill and eventually pulls into a station and I thought that's the kind of cadence by which most of us do science most of the time um, so I wrote what's uh, sort of essentially a spoof with, with apologies to Auden um, following a research lab instead of a, a mail train. This is the scientist This is the scientist donning a white coat, feeding her cultures, writing her lab notes, loading up tubes in a centrifuge rotor, thinking past the hum of the high-speed motor, juggling pipettes with experienced fingers. Science needs the dexterous, not just thinkers, separating proteins out from the DNA, running out some gels in an ice-cold gel tray, rushing from the coal store back to her benches. One climbs lots of stairs in the science lab trenches. Waking up at dawn to catch the perfect cell stage, staying until midnight when the cells just won't age. Sitting long hours in a microscope dark room, scrying out cells in the green fluorescent gloom. Patiently optimising each experiment, sorting the artefact out from the non-event. Constantly scheduling and multitasking, working through her lunch times and just hard grafting. This is the daily routine of biology labs. Slow, exacting work and small triumphs, many failures, re-evaluations, new ideas, patience, pizza, 
while in the adjacent office, different challenges plague in parallel the senior researchers. Emailed demands and emailed commands, emails from vendors, committee agendas, emails from admin and emails from madmen, emailed spam and financial scams, budgets to balance and schedules of charges, budgets with queries scrawled in the margins, grant applications in need of writing, paper rejections needing fighting, postdocs with technical problems griping, somebody's cells are mysteriously lising, students want pastoral care and advising, peer-reviewed manuscripts due for revising with all the attendant compromising, and the back of the brain trying to stay sane, insomniac struggle to understand why experiments didn't go as planned, and the background existential worry that we might be wasting public money. Could the ideas be neater or smarter? Could we be getting the data faster? Is the hypothesis watertight? Is there a chance that we're just not right? So the tasks mount up and a deadline looms and by Friday the scientist runs on fumes. There is little free time for the fundamental blue skies thinking that's quintessential for researchers to fulfill potential. For those big picture brainstorms in all of their detail without which the work will eventually derail since science is never too big to fail and 50% of the time it fails but when the science succeeds then it is beautiful beautiful like an equation an arabesque a perfect chord. No professional experience can be more satisfying than science that works. For a scientist does not discover in order to know, but knows in order to discover more. And that is not a trait. It is the essence of the matter. Thanks so much, Catherine. Next up, here's Anne Thomas to talk to us about how she turned her research on plants into poetry. Um, So Anne, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Uh, Who are you and what do you do? Sure. So as you said, my name is Anne Thomas. I am a final year PhD student with Andrew Tannenzap in the Plant Sciences Department. Um, And my research is about plant evolution, evolutionary history, and to some extent what that can tell us about their resilience to things like climate change, um, kind of their their past and their future, um, and how their sort of evolutionary history can inform their future. Lovely. And on the... um... On the Public Engagement uh, Creative Encounters website, there's a big photograph of you hugging a plant. Um, Is there a specific kind of plant that you are most interested in? Yes, indeed. So my research has focused on a group of plants from New Zealand called hebes. So that picture is of me hugging a hebe, which is usually a shrub, a woody shrub, um, that grows in all kinds of habitats from low lowland valleys to um, high alpine uh, zones of the mountains. Um, and there are over a hundred species. They're very diverse. Um, so I think they're very cool and they're a useful case study for evolutionary history. Amazing. So what about poetry then? How has poetry helped you to explore, explain, 
um, talk to people who aren't experts? Um, how, how has poetry helped with all of those kinds of conversations? Well, poetry um, first uh, sort of came to my mind as I was working on my project while I was reading through a guidebook about Hebes and all of the different habitats they lived in. Like I said, they're so diverse. They have, there's so much packed in to this group um, that I felt like just the, just reading off the list of all the different, you know, um, alpine and uh, brookside and all of these words about where they live um, was a poem in itself. Um, and I, I think poetry is a really good way to be, um, to, like I said, pack a lot in um, to provide images and um, something sort of concrete for a topic like a plant or a group of plants in its history. So I've been able to sort of present a poem to someone as a, a whistle-stop tour of this group of plants, of its history, and of how my research um, gets at that. So I also explored all of the processes that my research involves through poetry, and it was a really interesting way to just make this compact version of everything that I've been studying. So you wrote three poems for this project, um, and they are phylogeny, um, is it alpine elegy, and then um, the one about hebes, what was that one called? Yeah, so that one was called Field Guide to New Zealand Veronica, which is the genus name of the group, Veronica. So how has this project uh, sort of helped with the poetry writing? Um, did you uh, have these ideas before and this gave you kind of the opportunity to sit down and write them or did you come up with them for this project? So the only idea I had before was the one I mentioned where I was reading the guidebook and just felt like I was reading poetry already. Um, and when I saw the, the announcement about the program, it did seem like a good opportunity to explore that idea, but also to use this sort of unique approach to um, public engagement or outreach to combine my interests, which are poetry and science, um, and something that I've really been wanting to do and to get better at doing. So I'm planning to keep doing that, writing poetry about science and using it as a way to communicate. Fantastic. And what's the response been? I know that you did a, you actually did a reading in the Botanic Gardens on a very gorgeous day. Um, lots of people came and sat and listened and, uh, and also people from across the gardens um, sort of came along and, and joined in um, because they could hear it happening out on the lawn. So what, mm -hmm. what's the response been in general to these poems? Uh, good, good responses. I think people um, have have found the poems themselves um, beautiful. You know, I think that's one way to, like I said before, sort of package this research so they enjoy the poem itself and then they start to absorb some of the information in there as well. Um, I also ha had had at least um, one or two people express their surprise that a poem could be written about bioinformatics. And also their delight, you know, that I had done that. Um, and I think it just sort of opens people's eyes to the possibilities here um, for poetry. Um, and I, I hope they learn from it, from the, the research as well. Absolutely. And do you have any plans for another collection or um, uh, are you going to do, do more with these poems? What's, what's next for you? Well, I would love to write more poems about my science. I haven't made any specific plans at the moment, um, but these poems 
have continued to be um, a useful springboard for other, I've done a couple of other events um, sharing the poetry, having kids write poetry. Um, and hopefully, you know, we're having this podcast and I've gotten a lot out of these three poems, so I would love to do more, um, but yeah. Lovely, yeah, thank you so much. Um, and uh, we've got a, a couple of those poems you read out actually, and we filmed you reading them in the Botanic Gardens. So I'll make sure that they are all uploaded to the uh, Cambridge Festival Student Creatives Facebook page, uh, and anyone can go and have a listen and also a glimpse at the, the very beautiful gardens and see the visuals that go along with Anne's beautiful words. So thank you so much, Anne, for talking to us today and good luck with everything. Good luck with the PhD as well. Thank you, Rebecca. Field Guide to New Zealand Veronica by Anne Thomas. Hunting hebes, you climb east-facing cliffs, scramble rocky river gorge, hike to treeline through sparse mountain scrub. Philotaxis, to cuss it, that is, look for leaf pear, rotate right angle leaf pear, again, 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 squared off spiral up the stem. Jazzy ladder to diamond leaf bud, waiting to spring and spread into more rungs. Find rock shelf, crevice, seepage. Pick your way up scree slope. Look for limestone outcrop or margins of ephemeral alpine pool. Inflorescence, simple lateral raceme of crowded, spiraled, pedicellate flowers. That is, Find fountain and froth of flowers, four white lobes framing demurely the shock of hot pink anthers where the pollen calls, and the green nestled ovules waiting to swell into capsuled fruit. Range through fell field, herb field, stream side, rock slide, tussock grassland, cloud forest, coastal bluff, bare greywack, road cutting, bog, sand, beach shade, snow bank. Take the leaf ladders and the froth flowers and the rock hound roots. Shrink them to cushions, spin them out to long leaf trees, round them down to springy shrubs. Press them into rawhide whip cords. Spread them through golden grass, tuck them into cracks. Huddle in the cold, reach for the light, wander alone between rock walls for five million years, and find one hundred and more variations on a theme. If you loved rock and light like a Hebe, with all New Zealand to hide in, where would you go? What would you be? Our last poet today is Mona Jabril, an interdisciplinary social scientist whose work focuses on conflicted areas and the occupied Palestinian territories, Mona, can you tell us a bit more about what you do? Um, my name is Mona Jibril, and I am an interdisciplinary social scientist. At the time when I worked on the poems, I was working at the R4HC MENA project. This is uh, as part of the Center for Business Research. This project focused, uh, basically uh, focusing on the uh, political economy of health in the Gaza Strip. Currently, I am working uh, on a new project uh, on Close the Gap, Fair Admissions and Postgraduate Research. Wonderful, amazing. It sounds like you're doing loads of really fantastic work. 
So can you tell us a bit more about your background with poetry? Are you someone who's written a lot of poetry in the past or was it new to you coming to this project? Actually, I, I always felt interested in poetry. I think because my background is that I studied for my BA in English language and literature. So, you know, you read lots of poems as part of your course. And I got interested sometimes like really memorizing lines of poetry just because they are beautiful and they give me some joy. I saw, I probably have written a few verses just once like uh, delivered something at the university at that point, but I never thought of myself as a poet or a possible poet. <laughs> and then I just, after years, I, and, and when this, uh, after doing my master's and then PhD, etc., and then I came across creative encounters. At that point, I was thinking, okay, I want to find ways to disseminate my research. And I've already explored various ways. One of them is doing a podcast, theater, for example, animation and other things. So I thought like, okay, I haven't tried poetry, so let me try it. And and see how can I communicate my research through poems. I found the course really very inspiring, sort of started to get back to me, you know, my uh, earlier interest in poetry. So I was just like, really got into it a lot. I started writing birthday uh, poems, you know, like, for example, if I have a friend who has birthday, I would express this or reply to emails by poems. So it became like more integrated into my daily life as I'm taking the course as well. And then I just uh, started to think, okay, what do I want to communicate? So I started writing poems related to my research, but actually not thinking it is a poem <laughs> at all. So I just was asking David and it's like, oh, does it look like poetry? Because poetry in my view, the classical view was like, it has to be, uh, more romantic, have these images and stuff. And my topic was about political economy of health in Gaza. So there were, <laughs> it was like a bit more serious and you know, you have like complex things that you want to communicate and it doesn't always rhyme poetry. So it was just, so it was actually, David told me, oh, you're actually initiating a new form of poetry. And this was really encouraging. So I ended up writing about seven poems. I enjoyed it a lot and it wasn't difficult at all for me writing them. So it was just like really flowing. Uh, I was too much immersed in the research. So, so I found this an opportunity actually to convey some of the feelings that I have seen, for example, in the interviews with my participants. I, I wrote a report as part of my research but I also was keen to communicate the feelings, the silences, the, the, the emotions that I could feel from my participants as well about this topic. So poetry gave me an outlet for that. And it was so beautiful because poetry, you can just express sometimes really harsh things and traumatic things and instill like something that has some beauty into it and therefore some hope into it. It was also cathartic for me because I come from the same context that I am researching. I'm a Palestinian from Gaza. So it, it really helped me a lot to get out also not only the participants' feelings, but also my own feelings. And 
um, I'm really glad that at the end I I could share these poems as well, like on social media and different platforms, uh, so that people get introduced to the context, to the experiences of people in Gaza. So I felt I'm giving them voices as well. Uh, for example, one of my poems was living in multiple sieges. And it talks about the experience of females uh, under siege, uh, social siege, political siege, uh, other kind of sieges as well, and their mental health. So as I am putting this in, I also recalled uh, some of the experiences that my participants have shared that I've read in the research, but also that I myself have experienced when I was under siege, for example. So yes, I think it was an, a great opportunity to actually uh, have this medium of communication. And also because I have other mediums that I can communicate my research through, like, as I said, whether it's painting or animation or podcast or theater or games. So for someone to have different kind of outlets, and then you have the choice on which information to convey, to convey by which outlet, I think it was uh, such a creative uh, it just give me this creative feeling, I would, I would say, and, and just uh, give me choices as well, which I really appreciated, but also enjoyed very, very much. What one key thing would you like your readers to take away? Let's say it's someone who's listening to the podcast, perhaps who's thinking, I'm going to go and read these poems, um, who knows nothing about the context uh, that you know so well. With regard to my poems, I think they are really... Um, a good place to start with as an introduction as well, because I am, in a sense, I am, I wrote these poems after I conducted the research, analyzed the research, wrote the, so I am giving like summaries of it, summaries of the key themes of it. Um, and also, but at the same time, mixing it with lived experiences. So I, I would think it could be one of the ways that the reader can also explore as they are exploring the context of Gaza. But of course, there are many other you know, ways of also learning about the context, I think. I hope that my poems contributed to, to communicate some of the things that also people in Gaza want others to learn about them or to, to share with them. So it's like both ways in a sense, like having this dialogue, because I always felt like this dialogue was missing because of the siege con context. And, you know, so there was this side of, when you are inside Gaza, you feel sometimes it's like Gazans versus the world, you know, there's this feeling of the other sometimes. And also people, because they can't travel into Gaza unless they have certain permissions. So they just hear about it in the news or they hear when they see people there, like uh, coming to UK or whatever. So this dialogue, of course, through the internet, there became more available ways of connecting, but still limited and not natural, you know, getting to. So I hope that my, my poetry contributes as a dialogue platform at least. Living in Multiple Sieges, a poem on females' experience of mental health in the Gaza Strip. Doors are closing on me. 
multiple seizures haunting me with lots of feelings torturing me anxiety depression or PTSD whatever these terms could even be I'll keep it a secret inside me or for rumors I'll be uneasy pre won't be allowed to what I always dreamed to be doors are closing on me I am very tired, I can't clearly see. I'm drawn by waves of a deep dark sea. In Gaza, misjudgments on women are rendered free. Awareness of mental health remains at a significantly low degree. Going to counseling clinics despite progress is a taboo to see for women, some of whom are still perceived as only wives to be. Confidentiality, a challenge that policymakers so often decline to see. So I'll better keep it inside me, but doors are closing on me. Doors are closing on me tight, I keep thinking day and night, how alone I would this darkness fight, if employment in Gaza I can't find, this border siege rocks my mind, my frustration no longer I'm able to hide, memories of loss and damage are not easily put aside, they come in nightmares, in flashes, in a massive explosive strike. Luckily, no one can see them wide when in my room I choose to hide. Yes, by social rules, I silently abide, but doors are closing on me. Doors are closing on me since I was a child. Under occupation, I couldn't feel safe even in a bicycle ride or to fly in the wide sky. My aunt's gift of a colorful kite. Shit fighters are always there to fight. The tranquility of Gaza stars at midsummer's night, which it disturbs by throwing a frightening red light or launching a sudden killing strike on a family whose children were enjoying an ice cream they fondly like, for they never in their lives could go instead for a natural hike. Doors are closed on me. I am in a social siege, I want to step aside, friendship for me has always been a struggling side, if I have mental health complaints, some friends could my heart easily bite, I could rarely meet people of different cultures, nationalities or same mind kind, I joined in friendship there, whether I did or didn't mind, under blocked I see others happily stick side by side, but doors are closing on me. Even from my family, I can't flee. They'll assume my mental health defines me and put assumptions on what future my life would turn to be or tell me I'm always wrong only to conquer me for gender inequalities exist even when camouflaged by what is bright to see. No, it is wise not to show them the real me, but doors are closing on me. Doors are closing on me from my mind within. Why for people in Gaza seeing the outside world is treated as if a sin? What if I just want to travel to visit Germany to see dear kin or take a PhD or train as a veterinary doctor who treats Gaza deadly injured hen or join international conferences and proudly several prizes win? Why the occupation dares to put Gaza youth ambitions in a rubbish bin? Why can't I access libraries, museums or visit the famous clock tower of Big Ben? Doors are closing on me. Doors are closing on me from the world, all by the name of the failed Oslo Accord, which progressed towards real peace. It has immensely slowed. And see since then how many contradictions the Israeli government has showed. If Palestine is a state to be, why can't to the West Bank Gaza people even take a road? Doors are closing on me. Doors are closing on me from our factions, not only from Israel or abroad. Let's achieve Palestinian unity and take our community forward. Hamas and Fatah isn't it the time to drop the factional anonymity sword and commit yourselves to Palestinian community support, to which in the first place you faithfully vote. Why do you pretend not to see that because of you fighting each other's doors are closing on me? 
Doors are closing on me, mad. How can among this noise and negativity band one can possibly strive or even rightly stand or equip a qualified doctor or raise a well-educated lad when conditions of health, work, education and the environment are getting so, so bad, when salaries of governments are reduced to third of what people had previously had, when history of Palestine is claimed fabricated, when Palestinian land, economy and development are seriously blockaded, when even access to drugs and medical treatment to cancer patients is hugely complicated, when emergency ambulances struggle under skies that are militarily barricaded, when I am told that my trauma from these multiple sieges in Gaza is better be masqueraded, doors are closing tight, tight, and tight on me. Please stop here. Open the doors for the Gaza Strip with me. Thank you so much to David and all of the wonderful poets for talking to me today. Make sure to follow the Cambridge Festival on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube for more fascinating events and follow the Say That Again Slowly podcast for more conversations with experts on a wide range of fascinating topics. Thanks for listening. 